Good evening all again. Hello. Over the last uh, few weeks, we've been exploring uh, parables, these stories that Jesus told. The problem with many of the parables, not the problem with the parables, the problem's us. But what we do to the parables is we hijack them and we take them into children's church we take them into Sunday school and we write books about parables because they're good little short stories to teach kids. And we teach kids the parables and then as we grow up, we, we start to emotionally detach from them because they're children's stories, aren't they, that Jesus told. They're not stories for us adults and we, we almost, when we read them, we, we approach them as if they're still children's stories. So what I want you to do tonight is whatever sermon you have heard in your life on the parable of the Good Samaritan, hit delete. Get rid of it, okay? Take it from your memory completely. I want us to look at this story totally afresh as it was meant to be when Jesus told it 2,000 years ago. So delete it from your, from your heads, okay? So as we approach it, I want you to approach it as an adult story. Is that okay? Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, there are some stories that we have heard so many times that we become quite blasé with them. We know them. We've looked at them. Of course we know what the end of the story is. Lord, we believe that these stories are more precious than that. We believe that you want to keep speaking through them and there's new things to be said or there's old things to be said in new ways. So, Lord, as we look at this parable now, would you speak afresh? Lord, open our eyes to see and hear what you want to say tonight through this passage. And all the saints said, Amen. Amen. Jesus was a storyteller. Jesus loved stories. And many of us think that Jesus made up his own stories. But actually, he didn't. What Jesus did was he took a story from the culture, a story that people knew already, and he would take that story and he'd change one element or he'd change one thing about it, uh, which made the listeners sit up and go, that's not how the story goes. Uh, Imagine if I was telling you the story of Red Riding Hood and I told you that the wolf ate Red Riding Riding Hood. There we go. Can't even say a name. The, the wolf ate Red Riding Hood. You would say, "That's now how the story ends. That's not how it goes." Because you know the story, don't you? If I told you the story of the three little pigs, and I said at the end of the story, three little pigs, the wolf ate all of the pigs, you'd say, "Well, that's not how the story goes, is it?" The same with Jesus. Jesus takes stories that people knew, and he changed one element that would leave people going, "That's not how it ends, Jesus." In fact, he did it in such a clever way that it irritated the religious leaders so much they wanted him crucified. We approach these stories, we read them in the Bible as they are, and we think that's it. We think that's what the story is, and we're reading, oh, that's a nice story, Jesus. But sometimes we miss the radicalness of what Jesus has just twiddled with in such a way that we miss almost the point of the story. So I want us to reapproach this story of the Good Samaritan, which... The good Samaritan implies what? There are some Samaritans out there that aren't good. Because that's kind of what it it says, doesn't it? This is a good one. The rest of them were bad guys. But this one is a good guy. So I want to retell you a little bit of the story. The story starts uh, with a lawyer. A lawyer has approached Jesus. This man knew the law because he's a lawyer. And he approaches Jesus and he wants to be clever. And he approaches Jesus and he says, what do I do 
to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the question he starts with is already flawed. What must I do? How many of us feel like we've got to do something to earn something from God? We've got to go to church, or we've got to read our Bible, or we've got to pray every day, or we've got to do this or do that. If I don't do this, then God's not going to do that for me. It's a flawed question, friends, and the story is a story of God's grace. What must I do? Well, the whole point is Jesus is the one that's done it. You, friends, don't have to do anything. This is the response that a lawyer gives. Don't want to offend any lawyers in the room or those of you who are into law in any shape or form. But this is kind of a lawyer's question. What, what do I do? Give me the facts, Jesus. And actually, the story is a story of God's grace. Jesus flips it all upside down. So what must I do, Jesus, to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, well, what does the law tell you? What do your law books tell you, lawyer, about what you must do? And the lawyer turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love God with everything you've got, with your bowels and your heads and your hands. Love him with all your passion. And he says... What? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God fully and love your neighbor. This was a typical answer to a typical question that was being asked in this day and age. And what happened was different rabbis had different interpretations of loving God and loving neighbor. So the question we have to ask ourselves, was: how do we love God? Well, many of the Jews knew how they did that. But how do you love your neighbor? Because that, that, if this is the key or the gateway to heaven, loving God and loving your neighbor, you want to ask yourself, how much do I have to do of loving my neighbor to actually get in? Because you, you want to do as much as you can, as much as you need to do, but you don't want to go beyond what's necessary, really, do you? Uh, you want to do as much as you can to earn something that would get you into heaven. So this debate emerged around the rabbis. What does it mean to love your neighbor? So they go to the rabbis and say, Rabbi, tell me what it means to love my neighbor. Because I want to know what that benchmark is. Then I know I can pass the benchmark and I can go into heaven. So different rabbis would say different things about what the benchmark was about loving your neighbor. So some quoted, let me give you this. This is Leviticus. Where am I in my notes? Where are you? Here we go. Leviticus 19. Verse 18 reads that your neighbor is your own people. So some rabbis said, well, to love your neighbor literally means to love your own flesh and blood. Anybody that lives in your household, and maybe those that live in the households around your household, that's your neighbor. So love God, love your household, love those that live in the flats next door but one to you. But everything beyond that, forget it, you don't have to love them at all. In fact, you can ignore them, you can hate them and do whatever you like. As long as you love God and love those neighbors around you. Some rabbis then said, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't sit right with us. So actually, I think to love your neighbor is not just your household and not just the neighbors that live in the same street as you, but it's those that live in the same village as you. So love God with all you've got and love your village. Everybody else beyond your village, forget them. Let's not worry about them. But just let's worry about the village. Other rabbis came along and said, that doesn't feel right either. I think to love your neighbor is to love your household, is to love the people in your street, is to love your village. But let's make this bigger than that. Let's love the neighboring villages as well. 
So this debate emerged. The lawmaker turns to Jesus and says, who is my neighbor? He wants to know Jesus' understanding of who the neighborhood is. If I'm going to get into heaven, I'm going to love God, I'm going to love my neighbor. Tell me, Jesus, the benchmark. Is it my household? Is it my street? Or is it the neighboring villages? Jesus responds by telling a story. And this is the story that we're going to look at this evening. Now, before I tell you Jesus' version of the story, I want to tell you the story that existed before Jesus. What Jesus did was he took a traditional Jewish story and he made a little tweak on it and it made it electric. Okay, So I'm going to take us to the original telling of this story. The original telling of this story. There was a story that existed 2,000 years ago. And the story went like this. There was a man one day and he's traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem. Now, there's a little clue there at what time of day it is, okay? Uh, the clue is that he's going from Jer- uh, Jericho to Jerusalem, and he's going up to the city of Jerusalem, which means it was the morning, which means the priest and everybody else in the story are making their way from the township in Jericho up to the city of Jerusalem. The clue is it's, it's the morning time. So they're going up to Jerusalem in the morning. And as this man makes his way up this winding road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It says that a bunch of bandits, I love the idea, that, that's the good news version, a bunch of bandits, kind of little masks on or something, they, you know, they jumped out, they mugged the guy. We're told that they mugged him, they stripped him of his clothes, they took all of his credit cards, his mobile phones, his, you know, everything, his car keys, everything's gone. He's left naked, dumped in the street. And he's left there and they run off with all of his gear. So the man is left half dead in the road. He can't communicate, he's naked, and he's not got any credit cards, so you don't know who he is. So we're told, basically, we don't know who this guy is, but there's just a man dumped half dead in the road. And we're told that as he's laying there, good news, friends. Good news is that there's a priest on his way from Jericho, where he lived, up to Jerusalem, where he was about to serve in the temple. And on the way up, he, he approaches this man. Now, this whole story is meant to be hilarious. So this is the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's winding. You'll notice on one side, there's a cliff edge, and on the other side, there's a rock face. In other words, friends, it's not very wide as a road. In fact, it's somewhere about six feet wide. Imagine me telling you a story. I was in Westfields the other day. The escalator was broke. So I had to walk up the escalator. And as I'm walking up the escalator, there's a naked dead guy on the escalator on the floor. But do you know what I did? I crossed to the other side of the escalator to avoid... Well, you can't do it, can you? How do you get past somebody who's slumped dead on an escalator that's going nowhere? You physically have to step over them. This story is meant to be hilarious because you just know... As they go by, they're not just slipping past, they're literally stepping over a dead body or a half-dead body. So the story goes, there's a man slumped, half-dead in the street, bandits have got him, they've stripped him and he's naked. But good news, friends, there's a man walking down the road. Who was the man that was walking down the road? It's the priest. 
good news, there's a religious dude coming. He's going to do the right thing, isn't he? Well, the priest walks along. Now, the priest sees him. Unfortunately, the priest is going from home to work. At work, he's got to be literally, religiously holy and pure, which meant he had to avoid dead bodies. So the priest steps over him, being careful not to touch him and make himself unclean. But then there's a second character that's quickly walking behind the priest. The second character is the what? The Levite. The Levite. Who's the Levite? The Levite was the man that served the priest. So if the priest did the worship in the temple, he had to be religiously pure and holy. The Levite had to be religiously pure and holy as well because he served a religiously holy and pure guy. Okay? So he comes along. Now what's he do? He steps over the poor guy, slumped half dead in the street, and he slips away. But friends, there's good news, isn't there? There's a third guy in the story. Who's the third guy? No. In the original telling of the story, it is not a Samaritan. In the original telling of the story, it's a Jewish layman. Who's a Jewish layman? It's you guys. It's it's regular worshippers. Just people who are going to go to the temple to go and do what they need to do at the temple. The original story was a story about you and I knowing our position and place in society. Friends, there are priests who do religious, holy things. There are Levites who serve those who do religious and holy things. Now, they have to keep themselves pure. So our position in society is if you see a dead man in the street, that's, that's your gig. That's what you're about. The priests serve us so that we might do what we need to do. So the original story is about knowing your position in society. And the way that they would teach this is they would say, uh, and there was, a, there was one man that walked down the road. Who was that one man? And the crowd would all shout out, the priest. Then there was a second guy that walked down the road. And who was that? The Levite. Come on, play along. Because this is how the Jews learn. The second person that walked along was the Levite. And then the third person that walked along was the layman. And that's how they taught. Jesus takes this story, he makes a little twist, and he pisses everybody off. Let's have a look at Jesus' version of the story. Now, Jesus starts the story, and you can check it out, it's in your Bible. In Jesus' telling of the story, he says, there's a man, and he's on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. In other words, what time of day is it? It's home time. They're going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he's on his way home. It's the end of the day. In other words, everybody that's on that road is on their way from doing religious things and they're trotting home. Which means all the excuses that were on the table previously are now removed. There is no excuses for loving the dead man in the street. So Jesus tells the story. There's a man who's traveling from Jerusalem all the way down to Jericho. And whilst on that road, bandits with little masks come. They strip him naked. They beat him. They half kill him. I don't know how you half kill somebody. Uh, you half kill him. They took his credit card. You took his wallet. You took his shoes. He's left naked in the street. But friends, there's good news. There's good news because there's somebody coming down from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And who was it? The priest, of course. Well, the priest surely can do something, can't he? Unfortunately, at the end of the day, the priest could take any food that was left over in the temple in Jerusalem. They could bag it up and they could take it home with them and eat it at home in their township or their village. 
So the priest is on his way home and he's carrying some food. Now, if that food becomes unclean, it can't be eaten. So as he's coming down, the priest now has a question, doesn't he? Dead man, help him off food. And which does the priest go for? Food. Steps over him and carries on on his way. But friends, there's good news, isn't there? There's a second man walking down the road. Who is the Levi? Well, surely the Levi's going to do something, isn't he? So he comes along, but he's got his little packed lunch bag of food. And he looks at the dead man. And he says, I've got a question. Do I help the dead man or do I take my way home with my food? And he steps over and he takes his food and he goes home. But friends, there's good news, isn't there? There's a third person walking down the road. Who's the third person walking down the road? The layman. No. Jesus drops the mic. He turns to them and says, no, friends, it's not the layman. It's, it's a Samaritan. Ooh, it's like he's just dissed your mother. Can't, did Jesus, can you imagine the disciples like, I can't believe Jesus just did it. He's just put his foot in it. Why did he say that? Oh, he's going to have him crucified right now. They're going to just get him. Jesus, no, no, the man that walks down the road is a Samaritan. Oh. Now, most of us go, hang on, isn't, that's not a problem. It's a good dude, isn't he? The story's named after him. He must be a good guy. The reality is, in that culture, um, Samaritans weren't just disliked. They were hated. I don't have time to explain to you the ins and outs around how two groups of people got to the point where they hated each other so much. But essentially, it has to do with worship and two mountains. And one says, this is where you should worship. Another said, no, it's fine to worship over here. That was one of the issues. The other issue was both the Jews and the Samaritans, both had been taken into exile. They both had returned. The Samaritans had offered themselves to the Jews to help rebuild the temple. And by this time, the Samaritans had intermarried with non-Jews. So as far as the Jews were concerned, they were half-breeds. They, had, they didn't want to know half-breeds getting involved with their new temple they're built in, building in Jerusalem. So they turned to the Samaritans and said, we don't want you. Go away. So over 500 years, two groups of people grew to the point where they hated each other with that vile hatred. It got to the point where they would do things to each other because they hated each other so much. There's a story about a bunch of Samaritans one day who took a sack of bones from pigs and they got into the temple in Jerusalem. They dropped the sack of bones in the temple and quickly ran out shouting, unclean, unclean, and they they ran off. And the Jews came along to open up the sack and see what's going on and there's all these unkosher, dead bones of pigs in their temple. They just made the temple unclean. So you can see how this group of people really grew to hate each other. A couple of uh, just interesting little quotes. So this is from a book, um, Mishnah Sheveth. It's a Jewish book. Uh, It was oral in tradition, and then later on it was written down. And this is what it said. It reads that, that he that eats the bread of Samaritans is like the one who eats the flesh of pigs. If you eat anything... That a Samaritan has baked, it's like you're eating the flesh of a dirty swine. So anything they've touched, you don't want to go anywhere near it. I love this one. This is Ben Sirach. He lived 200 years before Jesus, he, Jesus, and he wrote this. There are two nations I detest. The third is not a nation at all. In fact, all three were nations. He can't even agree that the third is a nation. That's how much he hates them. There's, there's three groups of people I hate. But I can't even tell you number three is a group of people because I hate them that much. 
It says the three groups of people are this. The 37 nation all. The inhabitants of Mount Seir, the Philistines. Did anybody know who the Philistines were? David and Goliath. He was a Philistine. So they really hated those guys. Um, so I hate the inhabitants of Mount Seir, the Philistines. And what's he say? The stupid people of Shechem. He can't even say the Samaritans. He just calls them those stupid people. Friends, you know when you really hate somebody when you can't even say their name. I was chatting uh, to a guy a little while ago who's gone through a messy divorce. And I was asking how things were going. And he just uh, made this comment to me about them. And I realized them was their wife. And it got to the point where he couldn't even say his ex-wife's name. He couldn't even say my ex-wife. It was just them. You know when you've demonized somebody to a point where you just want to separate yourself, where you can't even say their name? Is there somebody in your life, is there a group of people in your life where you just hate them so much you couldn't even say their name? So this is the context. This is what was going on at the time. So Jesus says, there's a man walking down the road, and two religious guys who should know best, they don't deal with a dead man. But the man that helps the man in the road is the Samaritan. How do you think the hearers of that story felt at this point? Disgusted? Possibly guilty? Horrified? Angry? How dare he? How dare he say that? Jesus has just taken a story about knowing your position in society... And turned it into a story about systemic racism. Jesus is pinpointing the very problem in the heart of the lawyer. The lawyer wanted to get to heaven. But he wanted to do it by loving God and only loving the people that he liked. And Jesus says, if you want to be free, if you want to be where I am, if you want to be where my father is, if you want to get into eternity, then the way to do it is love God and love those around you. And Jesus throws it wide open and love those that you really hate. Why would he do that? Because Jesus knows if you don't forgive somebody you hate, you're going to live in the prison for the rest of your life of hating that person. Every time you see them on Facebook, oh, hate them. I don't even want to look at that. There's a little while ago, there was a guy. Uh, I was a youth worker in Birmingham for a number of years. Alex, our youth worker, was a member of my youth group. And uh, there was a guy in Birmingham uh, that did a few things. He said a few things to me that really upset me and really made me angry. He behaved really badly. And every time I saw him appearing on Facebook, I just wanted to kind of get rid of him. I couldn't even look at his photograph. He just made me so angry. And I realized my anger at him was my prison, not his. I wonder how the Samaritans felt when Jesus says... Actually, you've got to love the people that you hate the most. Because Jesus knows that's the only way to be free. It's to move from a position of hating to a position of loving. Who are those people? And we can make it broad and talk about nations and all of that. You know, if I said, who is your Samaritan? Some of us would go, oh, it's ISIS. That's too easy. Who are the people that you just detest? You can, you can barely say their name. So Jesus turns 
to the lawyer, says, which of these three do you think uh, was a neighbor to the man who, uh, who fell into the hands of bandits? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. What's going on there? Serious anger, isn't it? The guy, the lawyer, couldn't even say to Jesus, it's the Samaritan. The lawyer hates the Samaritan so much, it's the guy who had mercy. Imagine the lawyer with gritted teeth going, are you going to make me say it, Jesus? So he says it almost like he doesn't want to say it. The one who had mercy on him. And Jesus responds, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Gut feeling. You've heard the story. You've heard it in context. What's your response to it? What's going through your mind right now? Challenge not to hold a grudge? Yep. Sad at how many grudges you still hold? Yeah. Really hard to do. Thank you. I'm going to come back to that. And yeah. Yeah. I had a mentor. Eight and a half years ago, I had, I'll publicly share this, I had a deep hatred. I'm being hyperbole now, but a deep dislike of a church in the city of London called HTB. Uh, I had this inverted snobbery thing going on where, uh, well, Jesus just loves poor people, doesn't he? Uh, so, you know, how dare Christians with wealth, you know, how do you, and so if you don't know, HTB is a church of about 6,000 people uh, that's in the city uh, that predominantly, uh, well, now it reaches many, but one particular time it was a particular a middle-class demographic, and I was judgmental, and I was critical, and I took things that they said in love, and and I would just turn it on its head, and I'd make it all about them being rude, and I was sat with my mentor, and he turned to me and said, um, I think God wants to challenge you head on that your attitude is not godly. And I just want you to go away and think and pray about it. And I'd given this guy permission to speak into my life. And it felt like he'd suddenly stabbed me in the back. I was like, how dare you? You're not on my side. And he was like, no, <laughs> I'm not. And just the humor of God, if I'd have not dealt with that all those years ago, when 12 months later, I met a member of staff from HTB, who then introduced me to another ex-member of staff from HTB, who then introduced me to All Hallows Bow, who said, I want to do a church plant there, but I don't have a leader. And I suddenly realized God had done a whole 360 on me, and I, I dealt with stuff that I, and suddenly the next thing I know, I'm a part of the HTB family. And Becky and I have just spent the entire uh, Monday to Friday with HTB and all the other HTB churches at Focus. My daughter's come back going, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, God, God, sometimes, sometimes you've just got to let God pull out the weeds. 
Because all it is is rot in your heart. HTB weren't bothered because a little youth worker called Chris Rogers had an issue with them. I mean, seriously, why do they? They won't care. But yet, to the detriment that had on me and my life and my ministry. Now, coming back to what you said, it's really hard, isn't it? Do you know what? I think this is one of the most difficult uh, parables that Jesus tells. Because if we look at it properly, we take it seriously. I think it's really mega difficult. How do we deal with it then? How do we go from being someone who just finds this difficult to actually doing something about it? And I think, for me, uh, the heart of how this changes in us is when we start to realize this story is actually about you, me, and God. The scriptures tell us that we are dead to sin. It tells us that the bandit of sin has got us. It's stripped us, hasn't he? He's left us half dead in the street. Sin has left us in a mess. But we're told that a saviour is on the way. And his name is Jesus. And he's a saviour that we've rejected. We've said we want nothing to do with him. We, you know, our very nature of sinning has said we don't want you, Jesus. But yet the one we've rejected is the one that comes and he picks us up. And he bandages our wounds. He pays the price for our hospital bill. He takes us to the Premier Inn and he says to the staff, give them the best room and I'll pay for it on the family credit card. I think the only way that we can change our mindset towards others is when we start to realize that that's what Jesus has done for us. And when we realize how Jesus has done this for us, we can start to realize that maybe this is what we need to do to others. And the other thing I find really interesting about this parable that really helps is the Samaritan is the only one who knows how to worship properly. Jesus, in his telling of this story, says the Samaritan approaches the dead man in the street and takes out two things, a bottle of wine and a bottle of oil, which you might think are quite random things to start pouring over a half-dead man. Because it is really, isn't it? Why would you put wine and oil? Unless you're going to set him on fire as a barbecue... Why would you do that? The clue is where he's just come from. He's come from Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, there's a temple. And in the temple, you give sacrifice. And in sacrifice, there's two things that you would take your offering. You'd put your meat on the altar. And there's two things you'd pour on that offering. Wine and oil. These are two symbols of worship. And Jesus, in his story, says the man gets down on his hands and knees and pours wine and oil on him. Now, unless you can prove to me some medical reason why wine and oil would be needed at this point, I think it's about Jesus saying, actually, this is an act of worship. When the Samaritan gets on his knees, he knows what real worship looks like. Now, the priest has been in the temple all day long giving worship, but when he gets this moment to worship, he fails. The Levite has had all day worshiping the temple, but when he's got this moment to worship, he fails. But the Samaritan... He realizes that worship doesn't just happen in temples. It happens on escalators, little walkways, and the most unhelpful of moments. I can guarantee this was probably not a good moment for the Samaritan. He probably had to be somewhere, because we always do, don't we? But the Samaritan realizes, this is my moment to worship. This is my moment to worship. I think there's two things I want this parable to challenge us on tonight. One is... Uh, who is it that you would hate if you had an accident and you turned around and spotted that 
person on their hands and knees trying to help? Who would it be that you would say, please don't help me, I'm fine, I'll be alright, you're limping, your legs broke, there's blood dripping down your head, you're like, I don't want your help. Who would that person be? Because I think the parable is saying, that's your neighbour. Let's ask Jesus to help you come to that point where you can love God and you can love them as much as yourself. And I think the other challenge is just around worship. And I think it's a challenge of recognising uh, that worship doesn't just happen in temples, it happens in our streets as we interact with people. And we realise that maybe what you've got in your carrier bag is the very thing that's needed to act of worship in this place. Can I invite you to stand?